Welcome to another episode of Founder Focus, your masterclass in business building. I'm your host, Andrew Maduri, and today I'm sitting down with Glenn Turney. Glenn left his comfortable job as the VP of a Fortune 500 company to become a partial owner of E Squared M. E Squared M was a small company whose primary business was working with the US government for environmental compliance, planning, and conservation contracts. Glenn came along as a partial owner to bring his expertise in another part of the environmental industry, remediation. In today's episode, you'll learn about the ins and outs of doing business with the US government, what it looks like preparing for an acquisition of your company, and tons more. Before we get started, make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. Glenn, welcome to Founder Focus. How are you? I'm doing great, Andrew. Thanks a lot for the invite. I look forward to visiting with you today. Yeah, thanks for making the time in your busy schedule. So to kick things off, tell me a little bit about your life before you became a partial owner of E Squared M. Well, previous to that, uh, after graduation, I worked as a project engineer, uh, primarily in the environmental world and in environmental services industry. Uh, had progressed uh, to being a manager and, and a supervisor uh, during a, a period of about uh, six or seven years. Um, I had been with three different firms before I joined E Squared M. Um, one of those was an, uh, an engineering firm that did environmental services that was in Phoenix. And then I, the next two were specifically environmental service related firms. And my last um, position before I joined Eastgram, I was a vice president in a publicly traded company uh, that uh, worked uh, primarily for the federal government. And so I just progressed up through. Some people love to stay in the technical side their entire career. My interest was more on the management and, and uh, that sort of thing. So project management was natural. And then supervising other PMs became uh, the next step in that process. For those listeners who aren't familiar with how the environmental industry works, can you give us a high-level breakdown? Yeah. With regard to the the federal government where I work the most, um, their primary mission is not to concern themselves with the environment in which they train and prepare for their primary occupation, which is keeping you and I free. And so in executing their work, they end up having some issues uh, with uh, impacting the environment with either hazardous waste or um, unexploded ordnance or other things like that. So environmentally, we can worry about what we call the soft sciences. So that's the natural or cultural type resources, um, compliance with laws, And then there's remediation, and remediation is actually a physical, chemical, or biological treatment of impacted soil, water, and air. So we often hear that referred to as cleanup. You know, we need somebody to clean up this hazardous waste spill or mess. And so the portion of the industry that uh, I'm most experienced in is the remediation part, where we're going into an Air Force base, an Army post, or some other government. Uh, facility and helping them to understand their environmental issues and then facilitating getting those cleaned up so that they can uh, return the land uh, to what it formerly was before they start 
participating in their activities. So you're the VP of a Fortune 500 company. What motivated you to start looking for an opportunity at building a business or taking ownership in a business? It was a logical progression in my mind. I was with a firm in Houston, determined that I needed to, in order to really demonstrate to potential future employers that I was more interested on the business side, but had that technical background, I decided to get an MBA while I was there. And so that MBA um, helped me to understand more what it meant to uh, run a business and and how businesses uh, operated and so forth. And then when I saw the opportunity to work for a firm that uh, was publicly traded and there were stock options and those kinds of things offered to me, I thought that was the next logical step is to get in somewhere where I could um, execute work for a company. I was given stock as part of my uh, overall uh, compensation package and really understand uh, more what happened with companies that were publicly traded, how they operated differently. And then following that time, the next logical step uh, was more, okay, I'm working for a company that's publicly traded. How do I get to a position in a company where I'm helping to um, take more overall, uh, provide more overall input into the enterprise, not just my services, but the enterprise? And so I wanted to understand, hey, how do I take part in a firm that uh, I have uh, a a role in helping direct uh, where they're going in the future? So that was what I when I knew I needed to take one more step in that process. You know, and that more of a there would be a larger stake potentially in a company than what I could own in a. In a, in a publicly owned firm, and potentially that that larger stake would uh, provide me a larger return long term in my overall uh, compensation package. In a search for a company to take partial ownership in, how do you approach looking for a company that has room for growth and has a good entry point? That's a good question. Um, you know what I was doing at that time while working for the firm that was publicly traded is I was paying attention. To to both the market and those firms that I was exposed to in that marketplace. Um, what I was looking for were a couple of things. Number one was, was a fit with the current owners. So if I was going to have an ownership opportunity, I wanted to understand where is there an opportunity for me to, uh, I guess, go shoulder to shoulder with others who had like-minded goals and objectives and so my first step was really not to just look at the company itself overall from the external standpoint uh, and what I saw in the marketplace, but to understand their ownership model, who the owners were, what their goals and objectives were. And, and you know, that's difficult to find out um, in some cases, but I think uh, over time, once you see uh, what you think you're looking for, then you uh, go to the next step and and start asking questions and determine, hey, would this would this work for me? Would I be compatible in this ownership model? And uh, what is the future potential for this firm um, in our industry? And and how do I fit into that? What services I sell 
and how does that plug into that model? So that's what I was looking for is those types of things. And I wanted a place where my ownership piece would be substantial. I wasn't looking at moving over to some firm for a 2%, you know, part of, of the program. Um, I wanted to ensure that I had something that was significant. And if I was going to, at that point in my career, what I considered to be, the, you know, my highest output work level, I wanted to ensure that I was going to get the maximum return for my invested time. So you found what you were looking for in E squared M. What did the process of you joining that team look like? It was very interesting. That that team approached me and we had conversations and and uh, discussions over a two-year period. So it wasn't something I think future uh, folks who are looking at joining a business to be in a partial ownership role or something. It isn't something where, you know, they make you an offer and you give your two weeks notice and then you go. This process took us two years. And part of the reason it took us two years was because they were, at that time, they had a special government designation as a disadvantaged business enterprise. Um, So they were 51% owned by a minority um, individual. And so when looking at that, I wasn't ready to join them, although I felt like I fit in very well with the leaders there until there was an opportunity for me to get to a point where I could, um, you know, get that ownership piece that made it worth my while to, to uh, make the step invest. Uh, because once you're invested, it, it's not only a, you know, it's not just a, what it, what is in it for me? I have to put out for them as well. So it's a two-way street. Um, their model as a small business and their loyal customer base uh, was, was really uh, neat. And they had, each of the owners at that time had an expertise. And so you had a group at that time of five people who each had an expertise and a following. So I was just adding to that another different expertise and a following. And so um, for us, in our marketplace, it looked like a good, uh, solid opportunity to expand a part of their business they didn't currently have, but they had one of the important key elements, and that was they had clients that trusted them. So I could come in with a different service line and leverage off those relationships and experience. What was their business model as a whole, and what piece did you add to the equation? Sure. So their their business model, uh, very simple. In the beginning, it was a very small firm owned by the minority, uh, 100% at that point in time. Um, they they came in and two of the uh, five folks uh, showed up first and they had a ready-made group of clients. So their model was really taking this small disadvantaged business, which had an opportunity to get sole source work. So they could go out and get work because of their government status, sole source. Um, they didn't have to compete for that work. So um, my former uh, owner brethren um, saw that opportunity, knew they had clients they could bring to this small firm and get immediately on contract with them. They didn't have to go through what is sometimes a very long and arduous process to get a contract on the government side. 
they could immediately get sole source work to support their current client base. They were at larger firms. They were a small fish in a large firm, but had a very loyal client following. And so their model was very simple. It was like, let's go over to this place where we can get work sole source, non-competition for our existing clients and just expand that um, as we expand the number of experts we have in our firm and uh, sort of our footprint. How do we expand our footprint? So that was how they did that. Um, my part for that was uh, they needed a specific service line that they didn't have at the time um, just to round them out as a small business firm. When they graduated out of this status they were in, 8A status, um, and the minority owner was bought out, we went to the next level up, which was small business. Um, you couldn't get direct awards. You had to win contracts. So they knew in order to compete in that marketplace, unless they just wanted to be a niche player, they had to be a more well-rounded firm. So um, what I brought to them was this remediation service line, uh, my existing group of, of clients, and um, my ability to understand the marketplace and what new contracts were coming up that were uh, in that service line. E squared M as a whole was focused on environmental related contracts. Yeah, they they were again they were on the soft side. So um, we had folks there that were doing um, uh, what we call NEPA National Environment. Mental Policy Act. So they were doing the types of work where you go out and you determine, um, are there any endangered species here? And are there um, any impacts to the environment if the military decides to put a building here? So they were doing a lot more the soft side of the business. Very, very good at that. Going into uh, clients and helping them if they had a hazardous waste program already going where they were generating waste, um, helping them comply with all the, the laws and the regulations and so forth. So th their focus was on environmental services, but it was all um, really up to the point of an impacted soil, water, or air, right? Once, once there was a, a, a remediation element or an element where that needed to be addressed, uh, that's where their expertise uh, ended prior to my joining the firm. What does it look like as a small business competing for government contracts? Um, well, there are literally a dozen or more designations for small businesses. There are small businesses, small disadvantaged businesses, service disabled veteran owned small businesses, women owned small businesses, um, Alaska Native corporations, Hawaiian Native organizations. So there are a just a myriad of different small business designations. And so what you end up doing um, is competing against uh, other firms who have your same designation most of the time. So when you're in 8A, you can get sole source work, but if there is a large contract that's bigger than the sole source dollar amount the government can authorize, then you have to compete against other firms who are in your same socioeconomic status. So um, what you end up doing with this firm, they were an 8A prior to me joining, a lot easier to get work when you're an 8A. When they 
graduated um, and I joined, they were a small business in that at that time. The government said a small business in this category was anything under 750 people. And so what we needed to do is learn how to, I'm going to call it the big mouth frog marketing scheme. You know, big mouth frog, Glenn was a big mouth frog for probably three years. And what that is, is uh, you, you're too young, Andrew, to remember what the big mouth frog was, but look that up on Google. So the big mouth frog talked a lot. He had a big mouth and, and talked a great game, but he had very little hind end behind him, right? So what we had to do, what I had to do then was come in and talk as if we had all these remediation capabilities when 90% of those remediation capabilities were just me. And so we didn't really have staff behind us to to execute the work per se at that time. We had a very small, there were probably three people uh, there that had that experience, um, but we were looking at, you know, we, we were going to go after things that were of significant um, dollar size with regard to this firm. This firm, when I showed up, I tell people all the time, I, I couldn't imagine how they made as much money as they did and were at that time a $12 million firm when they had it, they had dozens of $50,000 jobs. And my service line, uh, most of the jobs started at 500,000 and went up to, let's say, 10 million. So a lot bigger jobs, a lot larger opportunities, um, both sides, opportunities for you know success, opportunity for failure and risk. And so um, their firm in competing in that small business category, um, we had to, uh, government proposals are ridiculous, Andrew. There, there are some, I've done proposals for a contract, and this is a contract, it's a five to 10 year contract. 1,500 pages is the proposal itself. Um, we do what's called a standard form 330, SF 330 right now. And those, um, most of the contracts we go after, those SF-330s, are 150 pages. So as you can see, there's a substantial investment. So even though I'm only competing against small businesses, I have to have the people. I have to have the ex past experience. In, in these cases, it's called projects. So I've got to have the people and the projects. And I have to put together a compelling case for why <clears throat> I should be one of the firms. Typically, they'll select four or five firms uh, for a contract. And then we'll compete for each piece of work called a task order that comes out on those contracts. So that's just a general overview of the small business uh, contracting world. And now I'm in the large business contracting world. It's just much more complex, much more uh, many more firms. So our firm would be considered a large business. We're 12,000 people. There are firms like AECOM uh, who have done a massive consolidation over the last 10 years that are 105,000. So I'm competing against firms that are 10 times my size. So you come to E Squared M, you're now a partial owner, and you're tasked with building out a new branch to the company. What are your first steps? Um, what I did, and I had, like I said, I've been talking to these guys for, for two years. So 
I showed up with a plan in mind. And my first step was for them to lay out for me their top, let's say their top 10 clients. And um, I also wanted them to lay out all the contract vehicles they had. So those are the opportunities for us to get, get work. Um, and then what I did was I took those two, two um, lists, combined them to find out, okay, where are these good clients that, that love these guys? Where are the contracts where we could potentially get work from that client on a contract? Once I merged that list together, then I prioritized it and I hit the road. <laughs> you know, it's time to go to time to go to work. Um, you know, so when we that was what I saw as the low hanging fruit. Where are these great clients that love this firm that I can go and say, hey, you guys, you love these guys. They're going to love me too. Here's what I can give you um, in addition to what you've been getting from these guys. That's, you know, it's, it's, you have a quadrant, right? There, and then the quadrant is sell new work to new clients it is the bottom corner, okay? Least opportunity, upper corner, sell um, existing services to existing clients. And in this case, I was selling new services to existing clients. So that's, you know, that's in the, let's say, 60% mark. That's where your probability of hitting is in the 60% mark. So that's what we were looking at is where is my low-hanging fruit? Where are the first things where I can go in, this client's going to listen to me because of the guy that's sitting next to me in the chair that's been doing his work for the last six or eight years. and you know, sell him what we can do now. Um, in addition to that, um, what I was doing is at the same time, got their very minute marketing staff, um, but really it was more me, um, and asked them to support me in identifying new projects, new contracts coming up. So I can't just rest on my laurels. Most of the contracts um, e squared M had at the time. It was a stretch for us to put remediation services in that contract. In other words, we had to have a really good relationship with the client to say, "Gosh, that isn't really what we were focusing on for the, our scope of our contract." But you know, let's let's give it a shot. So, at the same time, in parallel, I was trying to identify future opportunities that were coming out. A lot of times we know what's coming out from the government a year in advance. That's when you start putting together teams of companies and um, your strategy to go after that. So you have to start in that process very, very early. Um, most people come to me these days and say, hey, I want to be on your team for this contract. And I'm like, okay, you're a year too late. Because now we're looking at stuff 18 months out, two years out and starting to pre-position for that work, starting to lay out our strategy. As a large business now, all those small businesses that I used to be, they're gonna be on my team because I'm gonna have socioeconomic requirements to subcontract work to those small businesses. So the smalls have, have their cake and eat it too. They have their own contracts that come out, 
that are specific to them. And they have me. So when there's larger opportunities, they can be a part of that as, as a team member. And then that helps me to meet goals the government sets for the large businesses. When you were building out your branch of E Squared M, were there existing team members in place or did you have to go and build out an entirely brand new team as well? Um, a, a combination of both. So we had existing teaming relationships. Um, these, this, this firm did some minor remediation work. Um, they, had, they had, like I said, a couple, of, I think three people total that knew what the word meant. And so when their customer would ask them in the past, to help them with this activity, they would seek out a small firm, another small firm that could help them with that. So there was, you know, there was that kind of existing um, relationship, but those were very minimal. Um, most of those relationships I, I brought over. So I had, you know, I was very, very known in the marketplace. Um, I was in San Antonio, Texas, which is um, considered military city USA. There's a reason why if you want to be a government contractor, you live there. The opportunities are greatest. Um, so um, through an organization I belong to called the Society of American Military Engineers, that's a government uh, industry partnership to try to facilitate better service for the government and uh, get us exposure to the government. So there was a, it's a, a symbiotic thing. And through those relationships and my time in San Antonio, I developed a, a cadre of, of my peers and other firms. And, you know, what, what works best is, um, you know, you, you've heard it before, if you have one superstar on the Phoenix Suns, but the team they're playing has five pretty good players, you know, the, the the pretty good team is going to win most of the time. So what we would do is look for those opportunities where, you know, I might have these two things. This firm might have this one thing. Once you get a contract, those things tend to perpetuate. So the next time I put a proposal out, guess what, Andrew? I have had these projects on this previous contract that I can highlight to demonstrate to the government that I'm your your firm. You need to select me because I have this experience. So it's it's a chicken and egg, you know, what comes first, the projects or the contracts. And I would I will tell you it's a little both. Sometimes you have to be a sub and work through that angle and you get your experience through that process if you can't win a contract on your own, if you're not big enough to win a contract on your own. So that's that's what we would do. When you're looking to piece together a team to tackle one of these contracts, what key character traits are you looking for in your team members? Um, a lot of times that depends on where you are in your maturation process of your business. Okay, if I'm a very mature business, then my team members that I'm looking for are specialty subs. So for instance, um, in my business, let's say we need somebody who their focus every day of the week is on air modeling. Okay, so that's what they do and they do it really well. I don't have enough work to justify having a team of a six or eight or 10 people 
that just do air modeling. I, my projects are too far, few and far between. So I find those small businesses has specialty capability. They then can plug in and provide that specialty capability. I don't have to own that. Um, so from a capital perspective, um, I, I don't want to have people that are sitting around with not much to do till I get a job. And so I can team with them more often than not, they have some sort of socioeconomic status that is beneficial for my contract as viewed by the government. And so we have a great relationship. Um, so we, these days, really, I'm looking for specialty type subs. Back in the day, if we were, when I first joined E Squared M, I told you we were like a 12 man box and we were about 140 people. Okay. If the size standard, and, and then at, at that point in time, actually, uh, the size standard was 500 persons. Okay, so if I'm 145 and there's a small business over there that's 499, well, you know, I'm not that good at math, but that, that's three and a half times what I am, right? So I might then want to, I might want to team with another small business that has like uh, characteristics as me. And if they're 145 and I'm 145, well, then at least we've got about a 300-person firm fighting against a 499-person firm. So it depends on what your needs are for a specific contract. But um, it's either specialty items that you can't afford, don't want, doesn't make any sense for you to own, or if you're um, competing against other firms that are much larger than your size, um, and therefore have a lot more capabilities, you need to figure out how, how am I going to be on somewhat equal playing field with those guys. How does your life differ when you're essentially starting a new company within a company uh, as you built out that branch compared to life as a VP at a Fortune 500 company where you had access to maybe bigger expense accounts and more resources? Uh, good question. And, and I think one of the things that, that happens with that is you realize uh, you, you basically are signing, when you sign contracts or you sign a line of credit or you're signing anything, everything, um, my house, my cars, my you know, furniture, my golf clubs, those are all on the line. Everything you have is on the line. So when I'm looking at how we are spending money, um, we're looking at, you know what, I might have to wait another six months before I make that hire, and I might have to take on 20% of that role, and these other four people are going to have to take on 20% of that role. And so what you end up doing, uh, I don't necessarily love the cliche, doing less with more. Um, you just need to really maximize. There is no, we talked earlier about messy, there is no sloppiness in your budget, period. You don't have free board, okay? And you recognize that, you know, as an owner, if I am going to spend that money, I need to understand what my potential return on invested dollars are and I need to be more um, precise with those. I can't put my money in all 10 categories. 
you know, I don't have enough to spread it around. So what I have to do is say, tell you what, I'm going to prioritize those categories, which ones have the highest potential return for me, realizing I still need these other three or four funded at some point in time, but I might have to wait until my returns start coming in on priorities one through three before I can fund seven through 10. And so that, you know, um, you, you have less resources to deal with both in terms of personnel and in finances. And we were a firm that was very conservative and that one of the reasons I joined um, with our line of credit. We had a great line of credit. We could utilize it. Um, I can tell you in the five and a half years I was there before our acquisition, we rarely had more than uh, a million bucks on our, at that time, two and a half million dollar line of credit. We just didn't want to get too extended. You know, so if we were going to spend money that I was having to pay for made a difference in what I needed to, how long I wanted that that money outside of my hands, right? Um, I wanted my accounts receivable paying down that line um, the same amount or more than was required every month. So I looked at how we could do that. So that it was definitely a different uh, way of managing your cash. Um, and I, I think I don't, I don't want to say that uh, large firms where I was a VP and I had a big expense account are sloppy. They're not. Um, they just sometimes, they have more mouths to feed, right? And so if you have more mouths to feed, you got to put more cash out there. Anybody that's starting a business or starting a part of a new business um, has to realize the more, the more mouths you had to feed, the more risk, the more money you have to spend. There is no such thing in this business as do, betting on the common, doing everything on the cheap. You can't. You have to spend some money in order to uh, position yourself to, to make more in the future. have to have a long-term type of perspective. It, it's easy to look at that and get you know, a knot in your stomach when you're looking at what what our AR is going to be and, and what, what we have going out. Um, but there's a reason we have a business while well, we have a line of credit. Okay. And it isn't something you use as a crutch. It's something you leverage. You know, if, if I can use this and I'm borrowing money at two and a half percent, and I think that my project or my service or whatever is going to return 10%, you know, in the famous uh, business movie, The Jerk, that, you know, it's a profit deal. You know, you're trying to make, make profit. That's a really good call out because I think some small business owners um, get nervous about spending money, but you do have to spend money to make money. That doesn't mean you're unwise about it, but spending money is how you bring more money in typically. And the question is just how you allocate that. What's the best ROI? That's another thing that you become very good at, and that is ascertaining um, you know, the various opportunities for your cash. Okay. We only have this amount of cash. Let's figure out where it's going to give us the potential uh, highest profit or long-term project or long-term service or whatever your goal is at that time. If we as a business, when I showed up at Eastward, I, I want to give them full credit. They were 
doing just fine. They're a $12 million business. They were making uh, good money. Um, so I didn't show up as somebody that was in trouble. Um, but as I came in, um, you know, I mentioned my projects, you know, I, I, get, I said, man, I, I'm not nearly as talented as you guys. Cause I can't make money on a $50,000 job. You know, the money's spent before you open up project number. And so, but when you have larger projects, guess what? You have more financial outgo. So positioning for those those projects and doing those kinds of things cost more. So um, when I came in, I, I had to ask for more money because it was, we had a bigger potential there. Um, however, it was going to be more costly. So I think they could have been perfectly happy bopping along as a $12 million firm. Um, the owners were doing very well at that time. Um, and, um, but I think they, they all, and that's one of the reasons through all of our discussions I joined, had the same goal in mind. And that was, we need to expand until we are just under that 500 mark. And then we need to sell and, uh, we'll let the, the chips fall where they may after we sell. We had different age brackets in the ownership team. So different people had different, um, desires and what to do after a sale would happen. So um, you, you do have to look at how that, that those funds are going to be used. But I, you know, I'm a big believer. You, you, you can't, you're not going to realize or maximize growth if you're minimizing your investment. This doesn't make any sense. And, you know, think about your portfolio, right? Stock portfolio. You know, you're not, you know, you know, if I'm putting 50 cents in the in the stock market and I don't care if my return is 28 percent, I'm I'm going to get make 28 percent on 50 cents, right? So you you have to think about where do I want to go? What is my goal? Our goal in this case was to be just under 500 people when we sold. When it comes to expansion, aside from not being afraid to spend money wisely, what are their key strategies? helped you expand to the point where you guys had a successful sale? I think the, the big issue was um, we had uh, a president who was very uh, outgoing um, and, and very charismatic and could go out and help the firm position to get new work. We had a, he was one of the majority owners, the other majority owner was very, very practiced, got very practiced as the firm grew at the back office things. And I think one of the things people need to understand, I can sell work all day long and I can have a lot of work coming in the door. I need to have the people, right? And that that's complex enough, but I also need to have the systems. Um, one of the things that people don't realize, the government is very, very specific in what they require for your accounting system. The government knows precisely how much money I make. They know what my overhead is. They know what my general and administrative costs are. And we negotiate profit on every job. So when you look at that, you have to have a system that meets these requirements. It's not something that is optional. The government requires you to go through and prove to them how you spent your money, where you spent your money, all of those kinds of things. 
So I think one of the things that as you scale up or get ready for an, a, a larger enterprise, you have to understand is, and even if you aren't just doing work for the government, you need to have a system that is able to be expanded. And I'm not talking about bolt-ons. I'm talking about a system that's flexible enough to, you know, a purchasing system, accounting system, you know, IT support. All of those important back office things are crucial um, to keeping up with all those folks. If I can't demonstrate to the government that I, you know, what I sent them in the way of an invoice is legit and has the backup they require and need, I'm in trouble, right? Um, work is great. I used to tell my guys, and still to this day, um, as a project manager or even managing a program, a multiple of projects, executing the work is one step. We as a business don't realize any value from that until I get my money from those guys, right? So if if I'm going to invoice, I have to have my money in order to pay my folks, in order to pay our light bill, in order to pay for new computers, for new people, right? On down the line. So um, executing the work is is crucial and very important. And I can drive that process. I also need to make sure that I am, I have a system that bills on time, bills the right amount. I have a client that pays. You know, thank goodness the, the federal government, um, they, they're very particular about their invoices and the specificity is ridiculous. I mean, if you have a what we call a cost plus job, means you get paid for your cost plus fixed fees above that cost. So they, they know what my exact costs are. I might have, you get back to the paper, they love paper. You know, I might have a 40 or 50 page invoice. Oh my gosh. With all the backup. I can barely keep up with a three page invoice. All the backup, because <laughs> I have to have all the backup. I have to hmm. print out of my system the hours that my folks charged to that project. I have to have very specific information. And so as you grow, and my line of business, especially you know where it's primarily the government, you need to make sure your systems are able to grow with you, and that they're appropriate for the type of work you're doing and what you're trying to accomplish as a team. IT is crucial, and it you know there are different kinds of. We talked about size as a business, and we talked about socioeconomic status as a business. There's also um, are requirements for the type of information flows. You you can have top secret work. You can have secret work. You can have um, work that is FOUO and for official use only. All of those require a specific um, type of IT protection for that data. If I'm working on something that is very, that the information, if it got out, could be detrimental to our federal government, guess what? That's People take that pretty seriously, <laughs> you know. They're, yeah. they're, As they should. Yeah, we have we have requirements for the types of system we can use. We have requirements for the people. I have to personally get a clearance to be able to work on that. You know, all of those things. So your systems 
are, I want to tell you, I think they're at least 50% of your enterprise when you are in the type of business I'm in and you better spend the money and you better ensure that, you know, ask the questions. Um, You have peers out there in the industry. What are you guys using? You know, what are the pros and cons of that? And so that's, that's one of the things that maybe people don't think about too much. Um, I think it's, in my experience, the same in the private industry, same situation. You know what? You, um, you can have fun all day long and you can work your tail off, but if you don't get paid, um, you know, you're, you're not, it's, it's, it's short lived. Yeah. It isn't a very, it's a, um, not a long-term model to follow. You're talking about systems from an industry standpoint, and you also brought up project management. When you're starting a company, building out a branch of a company and trying to expand that company, there are constantly things moving left, right, center, behind you, all over the place. How have you personally created your own systems to help keep track of different projects, different people, all those moving pieces? Yeah, I think there are, What's what's great these days, um, as opposed to 15 years ago, um, we have software packages and other things that help us a lot along those lines. But we also nothing substitutes for personal involvement. And I think um, from from my perspective, I use the system for indicators. Okay, so I think that's one of the things people don't uh, maybe necessarily understand is. The system is a good indicator um, hmm, that, that there's an indicator that there might be a problem with that project. Okay, well, how do I find that out? Not through the system. You know, I pick up the phone and call the project manager and I find out, okay, what, what's happening? How is it happening? Why is it happening? How can I help? You know, wh- what, are we, what are we starting to see here? You know, uh, uh, enough of these programs are laid out where you can see the indicators that are okay we got something going on here um we're upside down here why um but nothing really substitutes for that personal interaction to try to find out what what is really happening and developing enough of a trust relationship with those folks that they are going to tell you what's going on um if i have to call them and ask them what's going on we're already we're we missed step 1 and step one is them calling me to tell me there's a potential issue and, you know, here's what I think we should do. Um, and, and, and along those lines, just a little uh, tidbit for you. You know, I never solved these folks' problems, right? Uh, I learned a long time ago, probably 20 years ago, we were doing, we were having an intern every summer. And um, we bring these interns in. It was a blast for me because um, we had what we call Glenn's Fireside Chat. and so. The last 20 minutes of your day every week, as the intern, you came into my office and we talked about um, two things. We talked about what you'd learned as the intern that week at the, at the firm. And then we talked about what you saw that you thought, you know, you would change if you had an opportunity to do that. And so we didn't necessarily always get great ideas out of these folks of, of what they would change. But you know what we did? We got these we got these interns thinking like they they were aware of here's what I'm trying to do okay I'm not just 
doing X, Y, and I made them do everything. I said, this is small business. You know what? I want you to know where the, where the trash ultimately goes. I want you to know how to do copies. I want you to know how to um, fix, fix bulbs, you know, all of those things, all the way up to working on a project. But you, you teach people how a, a, a method, get back to my, my logic and my method, a method of thinking. I'm not only learning so they realize, what do I place importance on? Learning. What did you learn this week? That, that demonstrates to them I'm placing an importance on learning, not just output. I'm not asking them about output. Hey, how many drawings did you get done this week? That, that is, is no, that's for their, whoever their supervisor to worry about. But for me, it was more, hey, what did you learn? How, you know, try to get them to learn more. And then what did you see? We can all observe a lot. Um, but what, what did you really see? Okay, you, you can learn that, hey, this is, this is what button works on this software program to make this drawing red versus blue, right? Okay, that you learn something, right? What's the, what's the point of that? Um, and then with my direct reports, it's always been a process where if you come into my office and you have a problem or a challenge, then it's a very specific um, type of recipe I have for them. Okay, walk into my office. Number one, state the problem. Number two, I want you to give me two or three potential solutions to that problem that you've come up with. Uh, number three, I want you to tell me which of those you would select and give the reason why. Right? So what, what are you teaching these guys? Um, you're teaching them how to problem solve. You're teaching them how to solve their own problems. Otherwise, they're going to be coming to my office all the time. If they come in and I solve their problem and they walk out, what did they learn? You're saving everyone time. Absolutely. And I'm also trying to set things up where, you know, one of the things that we did early on, how, how did I do the big mouth frog? And, and I'm telling you, I'm selling these things. We don't have them. Guess what? When we went back to the office, you know, uh, I rolled up my sleeve and jumped in with the guys and we went to work. That's what I had to do. So if I can train them and teach them and look at them, then they're going to start figuring out how to solve their own problems. Now, they might send me a courtesy note that said, hey, we had a little hiccup here. Here's what I did. Boom. Done. Right? Um, but, you know, you, you train people what they should be thinking or, or, or just a method. There isn't anything. It's nothing magical about that. I mean, there's nothing. You know, you don't have to uh, pay a lot of money to figure out that method. Um, but what you do is I would not input at all until we got to the reason, uh, the solution they selected and and why. And then I hardly ever gave any direction. I would say, I would start asking a few more questions. Okay. A couple of, maybe a couple of things they might have missed when they were determining this or that. We'd go through those. So that's something I think you can you can do to help. Uh, create that next group of people who are going to be able to help you and you can spend your time on other things. As I mature and get more experience and, and so forth, I'm, I can be more valuable in other places. What other tips do you have for someone who's been thrust into or purposely found themselves 
in a leadership position with a team beneath them? The the thing that I've learned and seen out there and I thought was was good, I, I saw this first by a couple of early leaders I had was don't come in with guns blazing. You know, when you have, you're put into a leadership position and maybe you're ready and maybe you're not. Um, I, I will tell you, most people are not. And that's a good thing because they're going to learn and grow and you learn more by doing than you you do by somebody giving you a car that's running and full of gas <laughs> with the GPS already locked into where you want them to go. Um, but what I say is take some time to observe. Um, and I normally, um, all the leadership positions that I've taken in the last uh, 15 years, I give it at least 60 days before I make any changes. Okay. Now, if there is something that's really standing out and there's a very challenging potential situation or a problem employee or something that I identify more quickly than that, I will. But what I like to do is just give these folks the benefit of the doubt. You know, they most people do not enjoy someone coming in, they're working their butt off, doing their best, and telling them you're doing it wrong. Right? They don't they don't want to hear that. But if you observe and you ask a ton of questions over that period of time, then you can formulate a potential plan on how we can get to the next step. Um, people want, they, they love it when you ask for input. I think what leaders do, what, what leaders have to understand is do not be afraid to ask questions and the potential for you to show that you don't know everything. You know why? Because you don't. You know, it's a new situation, right? So I, I think if you ask questions, you you listen, um, you will be a better leader. And you'll also show some empathy and they'll say, okay, this guy isn't coming in here trying to be all, you know, um, show me how smart he is. He's actually trying to understand our process, my role, our service lines, those kinds of things. So that's that's one thing I think is is important for new leaders to understand is is you know a lot of times uh, you know James one nineteen is my favorite verse out there because it's the you know quick to listen slow to speak and slow to get angry you know I mean I think and there's a reason why quick to listen is the very first part of that right we as leaders are sometimes not confident enough. Um, and so we we don't want to ask questions and look stupid, we, you know. And in in reality, that in my experience cuts the chase more quickly than you trying to figure it out on your own. And uh, you know, if you you will always, you know, you can you can tell the different leaders by the amount of uh, concern they have with how they look versus what's right. You know, simple for me. I can pick somebody out probably 15 minutes of, of interacting with them. Speaking of being a leader and looking out for what's right, when it came time for E squared M to be acquired, as a leader, how did you prepare for that acquisition and exit? Which I say exit, it's kind of funny because you ended up working for 
the company that acquired E Squared M. From the beginning, as I mentioned to you, I wasn't planning to join E Squared M if they didn't have the same goals and ultimate goals and objectives as I did. And that was to build something to sell. Um, I saw that as our, our, our best option as far as uh, the way we could, could um, maximize you know, our efforts and our returns. So there was a, that was always the primary goal is to sell. Um, we had, previous to uh, the acquisition, we had been very actively talking to a number of experts and outside folks um, on the best model. What is the best model from an acquisition perspective um, for us, for a firm our size, for the services we provide for the future, all those things. So we had a very deliberate, very formal walk through that process of, of what would be best for um, not only the owners, but our people. Um, I'm proud to say he's talking about do what's right. We could have made more money as an ownership team easily could have made more money than we did in this acquisition. But this acquisition, in our opinion, provided the very best opportunity for our next generation and the next generation after that, and I'm talking about in the hierarchy, to succeed in the same way we did. They were, we were obtained by a business that was employee-owned. So all these folks brought all their 401ks, and in many cases, um, our stars, uh, this, the firm that acquired us, gave us additional stock and options for our stars to incentivize them to stay. They understood. It's a service industry, man. Your people are everything. You know? uh, and so that model was ideal and the best model, in our opinion. Um, we looked at ESOP models and, and things like that. Um, we could have went to, to auction and the owners made more money. Um, but we had a, ended up having a three-year workoff period, a uh, three-year earnout, uh, three-year golden handcuff. So guess what? I, I got to work with those folks for the next three years. So you better have, have answers when they ask you the question, <laughs> why did we do this? And what were, what were the you know, uh, factors. I, I will tell you, anybody who's left in the firm and still here is happy today that they that we did this. In in, in from a standpoint of their long term, um, their long term ability to follow the same footsteps we did. So, in other words, the amount uh, that our internal stock pays and their opportunity for a, a you know comfortable retirement and, and those kinds of things. I think they're all very happy with that. Um, some of them will tell you, uh, I'm amongst them, um, you know, it's not as much, it's not, it's not as attractive being in a large business as it is in a small. Um, because you, you have to, there are a lot of rules, right? Um, I, I, I can it to a ship, all right? If you have a Navy ship in San Diego coming into the harbor, man, it turns slow. It's big. And decisions are slow and deliberate. And, you know, when you're a Ferrari, um, 
you know, you, you, you got work to do. You got stuff you got to get done. And, and, you know, I didn't have to ask anybody to do things. I didn't have to ask my ownership team. We all had carte blanche because everybody had a trust model that, you know, I'm only going to do what's best for our firm. I'm not, you know, this has nothing to do with me personally. And so I think um, getting folks ready for that was more challenging. They were used to picking up the phone, calling me, hey, what do you think about this? Yeah, either go or I have more questions, right? So that was the biggest part of the transition. Um, People were uh, not necessarily thrilled initially, um, but I think once they saw the extent to which we went to try to involve them and get them into an employee-owned firm and and those kinds of things, uh, I think they, uh, maybe not initially, (laughs) maybe it took them a while, maybe it took them a year, maybe some of them took two years. They, they had come to understand that what we did was in, in the best interest of the employees and um, the owners did just fine. No, no question there, but we could have, we could have really sold them down the river and sold them to a venture capital firm or something and maximized our money, but really, you know, would have been uh, not nearly as, as acceptable for the, the firm, the rest of the staff. From building out your part of the company to the point of sale, what would you do again and what would you do differently? Yeah, that, that's a good one. Um, it, it, when I look at how we built it out uh, for sale, um, you one of the things you would say or think you should do differently is you, you, you try to time it better, right? We had a giant program going on over in Afghanistan at the time of acquisition, um, printing money, literally printing money, um, backing up Brink's trucks and filling them up and and distributing, right? And so you, you, I think what you'd like to do differently if you think about it is, oh gosh, I wish I'd timed that a little bit better. We could have probably done you know, we would could have probably waited a year and maybe the company's worth X more million and the the owner's um, portion of our profit for that year because of that giant job would have been X. Um, so you, you have to be careful second guessing your timing. It's like the stock market. Um, I've been working with a, a guy in my financial world um, that takes care of our business, our, our family financials for 15 years. And I, I trust him a lot. And one of the reasons I trust him is he's like, Glenn, a lot of people have gone broke trying to trust in the, or trying to time the stock market, right? So what would we have done differently? Uh, not a lot. I think um, just making sure, you know, did we miss one or two of the stars, the superstars there that we could have gotten maybe a little bit more juiced so that when they, uh, uh, came into ownership, they they had a little more. Maybe, you know, we might have been able to do that. But you're there's a lot of moving parts because guess what? You aren't you didn't just shut down to sell the business. The business is still operating. Oh, by the way, I have three years to make this cheese on top of what I'm selling it for this. And if I hit all these milestones in the next three years, I can get this much more. 
right? So when you look at that, um, you're very, very busy. And I don't think many of us took very long to reflect on, uh, hey, what what could we have done differently? What did we do right? I think I just explained that. I mean, we what we did right was look at what is in the best long-term interest of our employees, because we each know and agree based on what we're seeing um, in this in this potential acquisition that we'll all be fine. We're we're, we're going to be, you know, this is if we want after our three years we can ride off into the sunset. Um, we're all relatively um, still in our prime. We can still go rock and roll somewhere else. Uh, not necessarily in this business. We can do all this stuff. So I think it was good for us to uh, look at, hey, what's in the best interest of the employees? Because ultimately, that turned out to be in our best interest too, uh, because those folks were very heavily involved and responsible for the opportunity to sell the company. So we need to we need to make sure we we um, take care of them. And then we need to be honest with them when they ask the questions. That's uh, I would always, always do that. Be honest about what you did, why you did it, how you did it. Um, the fact of the matter is, oh, we'd like to stay a small business forever. Yeah, well, we when I showed up, we're 140 people. When we sold, we were about uh, 440, okay? That's a lot of growth. Yeah, 300 people. I was here announced in five years. So we were heading toward that 500 mark quickly, right? And so if you exceed that 500 mark, then I'm in the unrestricted category. I'm bidding against big businesses. So functionally, you know, unless we were to split the business or do something differently, that's what we, it, it was required. It was necessary. And I, I think those are the kinds of things that you can't refute that, right? You can refute whether or not they think they got the best deal or we made the best deal for the company. That's open for interpretation. But what they can't refute is the fact that we needed to do something prior to hitting that 500 mark. We we had to do something. Um, so, you, you know, you just you separate the emotion out. Business has no place for emotion, period. You, you got to separate it out get very clinical about it and lay out the facts. And then the, the things that are at the bottom of the list, the, the last three that are open to interpretation, do your best, but you, you know, everybody's going to have their own thoughts on those. So you, you can't please everyone. There are 420 people. Five of us made the decision. You are not in a position to please 415 people. You know, try to hit the majority <laughs> and take care of your superstars always. Right. Buy Michael Jordan Hummer. Absolutely. Keep them happy. <laughs> yep. That's right. What tips do you have for business builders who are looking to balance their personal life and their work life? Oh, good one. I, I had fun with this. Um, and we talked about that just a touch the last time. Um, my biggest tip is when you are home, be present. And I think that um, it's become so easy for us these days to be absent even when we're there, physically there, 
mentally, emotionally absent. And so for me, um, you know, you know this, uh, you've heard from many, growing a business is, is, is extremely time consuming and difficult endeavor. Okay, you're gonna work long hours. You're gonna, if you're like me, I've traveled all over the world to every Air Force base in the world. And so you gotta commit to that process. Um, but when you have that time with your family, uh, and I'm talking about specifically with my family right now, be there, be there, Put your, keep your phone in your pocket, you know, um, look your kids in the eyes, talk to them. Don't be taking calls when you should be throwing the baseball. You know, those are things that you just can't compromise on. You know, take, take trips, you know, try to unplug. Um, that was always an interesting endeavor for me. I'm fortunate in that I've been a get up for 35 o'clock my whole life. Okay. So when you're on vacation, guess what? I'm with, I'm with teens and my wife and they're not going to get up till nine o'clock. Okay. So if I can work from five 30 till nine, cool. You know, then at nine, shut her down, go play golf, go do, go fishing, go hiking, do whatever. But, you know, and then at night, you know, eight o'clock, they're in bed, go to work, you know, work till 10, work till 11, like you did last night, you know? And, and, and so even though I'm maintaining my fingers in the business, I'm still getting a few things done because I can't stand the thought of coming back after being gone for a week and, and having a thousand emails. It gives me, you know, uh, a bad feeling, you know, and I, I think that, you know, I, I would really, I, one of the things with me, I worked early and when I was in town, I worked, went to work very early and I was always home for dinner. Every, every night I was in town, I came home to dinner. You know, I didn't go out and socialize and do all those things. I came home when I was at dinner, you know, so. And the last thing I'll tell you is you just got to, well, second to last, you've got to be extremely good at and work hard at prioritizing your time. Prioritize your time every day. Get up. I don't care if I'm on vacation. I don't care if it's what it is. Prioritize your time and maximize the efficiency of what you're trying to get done that day. And if what you're trying to get done that day is take personal, you know, work on your personal life. Because I can tell you, people who don't have a good personal life have difficulty in the business. And, you know, so you've, you've got to work at that. And then I think the other part of that is, in my case, my spouse, you know, she needs to understand I need to lay out for her what the goals and objectives are, um, short-term, mid-term, long-term, and get her buy-in, right? She's, Team effort. Yeah. Well, let me tell you what. So when I was telling you, I was... First move to San Antonio, new company, trying to develop new relationships, new business, working 60 hours a week, flying back to Houston every week for class, and then having those little people at the house. You know, that that was a time of, I, I would literally probably not have 15 minutes in a day that wasn't accounted for. So you, you just become very, very practiced at, you know, uh, prioritizing your time. And my wife, God bless her, you know, I'm, I'm traveling, I'm gone, I'm busy. She's got three little kids she's dealing with. And, you know, so she's 
she's 50% of the credit for anything I've ever accomplished. How have you grown personally through this journey of business building? Um, I think that from a personal perspective, um, I enjoy the, you know, the, the, the thrill of, of trying to grow something bigger than yourself. I think that's always great, you know, and putting together teams and really getting people fired up to, to go after a, a, a goal or an objective. Um, but I think as I reflect, and I do a lot more of that these days, so I've grown there, right? In the, in the old days, I had no time. I promise you, after the, the, the sale of the company, I did not change anything other than who I was working for. I, I, didn't, I didn't think for 20 minutes about what had just happened. All I was focused on is getting up in the morning, logging in, rocking and roll. Let's go. Um, so I've learned to be introspective, be reflective. And you can be a better leader, I think, if you're reflective about how things went. Uh, was I happy with how they went? Was I, you know, what could have gone better? Um, I, I was routinely and always looking at, you know, process improvement, process improvement, right? You're always focusing on that. But, you know, really sit back and kind of look at a larger picture. Um, I think that would be good. And and then I've also understood, and hopefully you've heard this from me through our discussions, you know, giving back is there are different seasons in your career and you go through them at different paces with different people. Um, as I mature in my career, I realize how important it is to make sure that our next, our next set of superstars, even if those superstars are 16 years old and trying to decide whether they want to go to engineering school or business, be a business major, that is really where I can add value these days. Um, I yeah okay I can go somewhere and help them make an extra couple million bucks. Who cares? Really, um, I've been afforded a lot of opportunity. Um, I was the first person in my family, either my mom's side or dad's side, to graduate college. Okay, and so one of the things I love doing is talking to high school kids about what engineering school is. You know. Because I had no idea. I showed up and and I was I didn't have any idea what college would look like, relatively speaking. And by the way, they do a lot better job these days on orientation and all that. They give you a little heads up of what to expect. Yeah, and I and I also didn't have the slightest idea how to study. You know, I, I didn't that wasn't a requirement of me in high school. I didn't really need to. Um, I thought that's what your one hour a day study hall was, you know. That's what exactly what time I put in. Um, and so I had to learn, you know, as, as things got more complex <laughs> in the world, I had to learn more how to do that. But I think it's really important for us to, um, I am trying to help others flesh out their journey. What is their journey? I've, my journey started when I was 17, I wrote down all my goals. Said, boom, boom, boom. Here's what I'm going to do. Bing, bing, bing. Here's when I'm going to do it. Here's how I'm going to do it. Here's when I'm retiring. All these things. Nobody asked me to do that. I just, that's what I did, right? And so now that I've been through the journey, um, and I'm at some stage, probably later in the journey than early in the journey, I want to help people to try to understand and flesh out their journey and not get focused on things. I was really, 
honestly, I was really focused on when I first got into the working world on cash. That was it. I want to make some dough. I was very, came from a very low socioeconomic status. My deal was I'm going to drive a fast sports car. I'm going to have a nice place. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make some money. And I realized after doing that, thankfully, you know, somehow I lucked into making money. But that wasn't really the most important part. Um, that fulfilling your journey, um, having important experiences along those lines, um, working with other people, supporting them, th those all plug in. And I, I don't think it's a problem. I think. I think money uh, and rewards are excellent motivators. Don't get me wrong, right? I mean, they're they're good as long as they're under control, <laughs> right? And they're a portion of a big picture. Okay, they're they're this much of this much. So you you have to, you know, be recognize that through the countless lessons you've learned along the way. If you had to pick one as the most valuable. What would it be? Um, I, I think along the lines of what you're looking at with this particular topic, uh, my most important uh, item would be there are no shortcuts to doing something right. No shortcuts. Building a business is very difficult and, it's, and time consuming. Time consuming. You got to factor that in when you're looking at your objectives and your goals. Some people don't realize what it's going to take. And then they're disappointed when they don't hit their goals and objectives. But I think if I had to give people advice, that would be the number one thing is it's hard, very difficult. And, you know, it's not like what my son or others might think about influencers. Oh, that's an easy thing. You know, I'm just going to do this, right? No, it is super, super hard. And so you need to factor that in and you need to be prepared. Okay. That's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to, they're going to be sacrifices, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and I think as I look at that, that's the, the important lesson is these days, there are different people out there. There are people that work to live and people that live to work. And I'm not saying the people that work to live are not capable of building a business, but I think they will have to really understand the sacrifices that go into that before they make that call. Everybody has a different goal and objective. So when you understand what yours is, just understand what it might take. And a close second to that is, you know, hire people that are excellent at what they do, reward them very well, and leverage them. You know, I mean, when you build a business, Glenn didn't build this business. Glenn and his team built this business. I happen to be in a leadership role, but, you know, um, in, in my journey, in, in case there were two um, hires that were really solid, uh, that supported us on a business development side and were technical assets. But, you know, I think they were really instrumental in the success. And so it's tough. So here it, it's one, right? It's only one. It's tough. Get good people. That's what I, that's what I'll tell you right there. In hindsight, 
would you go down this entire journey of business building again? Absolutely. Not at age 60, necessarily, unless it was a lot smaller, shorter windowed thing I was doing for someone. Um, I'd go because I think it is important what I like to look back at and say, not only did I secure the future for me and my family, but I um, hope that others you might talk to who've uh, been in my employee and uh, have been my direct reports and others would tell you that it's extremely important for them and theirs. So there, there's a whole group of business owners now, you know, HDR is, a, is an employee-owned firm. They're, they're all, everybody, all 12,800 people or whoever, how many are in this firm are business owners, right? Um, different model, right, than we had. It was, they're, they're not in it to sell. HDRI, they are so hung up on the on the business model they have. I don't think they will ever sell. But when you have an internal stock that trades at probably a long term average of fifteen or sixteen percent, um, that's pretty good. Okay, so if a young man like you comes in and has good advice and starts putting his dough on the table early and realizing that it's a it's a long you know term. Uh, that you're looking at here, those people can have a very solid career, feel like they're doing something extremely important. In our case, cleaning the environment and helping our military. Our military had their mission. We were a support mechanism for their mission. And then in the end, when they get ready to be in my shoes, they can dictate when they want to walk away, when when they have enough, when they're comfortable, when their life circumstances um, come to pass where they, they're ready to, to move on to the next thing, they can do that. And so from that perspective, um, it was, it's, it's life-changing for our family. You know, I, you know I, I pray that others feel the same, that, that it is something that is, um, has been um, a blessing in their lives, and they've, they've been enriched by it. Um, so it wasn't just an opportunity for Glenn Turney to get, I, I don't want anybody to feel like it was just an opportunity for me to get in to a company that I knew was going to sell so I could fill my pocket and walk out. It's, it's creating, creating wealth always, always benefits much more than the person who's creating it. Always. Um, capitalism rules. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, we, we, you will always, uh, business owners um, are ultimately not only uh, taking care of themselves and their families, but they're creating opportunity for others. And I think that's extremely important. Glenn, thank you so much for joining for today's episode. I really appreciate it. Hey, no problem, man. I hope uh, it works well for you and uh, you don't have to do too much editing. No, trust me, very low editing, mainly myself. Uh, Andrew, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. And like I said, if uh, things come up and you, I can be of help, just let me know. If you found value in today's episode, please leave us a review and share this with other business builders. Make sure to follow our Instagram at Founder Focus so you don't miss any announcements and check out our YouTube channel at Founder Focus Podcast. See you next time.